It's been a lot of fun uh, teaching, uh, going through Esther with you guys. I know that when I first um, thought about teaching Esther, I thought I knew a whole lot about Esther. But as I've dug through and taught on um, the book of Esther, chapter by chapter, uh, I've learned a whole lot, and I hope you have as well. The book of Esther is a lot like a Shakespearean play. Uh, we're going to see lots of highs, lots of lows. Um, when you think things are all going your way, and very quickly they flip on their heads. Um, some for worse, some for better. Um, but we see a lot of reversals in the book of Esther. And um, much like a Shakespearean play, the way you look at Esther and the way that you see things unfold in Esther really depends on which side of the aisle that you're on. Because for Haman and his buddies, it's a tragedy. And you look at this story and you thought everything was going just as you thought it was going to. And, and by the end of the story, it's completely a tragedy. Now for God, um, for Esther, for God's people, for Esther, for Mordecai, uh, it's going to be a comedy. Because we're going to see uh, complete and total, um, no hope whatsoever and it's going to just be humorous as they look back and see what to, what's going to unfold and how it's all going to unfold tonight as we look at chapter 9. Um, the theme of this great reversal as we look at this it's going to be right here in the very first verse of chapter 9. We're going to see this reversal that is declared. Chapter 9 verse 1. Now in the 12th month which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and the edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So here we are, finally. D-Day has arrived. And the day that the Jews for many months had been dreading, uh, when they were supposed to be wiped off the face of the earth, where they could not defend themselves, they had zero hope. But now they can defend themselves. Now they can fight back. And so who would win the day? Who would have the last laugh? Which brings us to our big idea. God is able to reverse any evil person or scheme to further his own plan and bring rest and relief to his people. The writer here in the book of Esther does not leave us in suspense very long. It says right here that the Jews gained mastery over those who had hated them and those who hoped for a great day of killing, those who had hoped for a great day of plundering will find them on the other side of the sword, will find them themselves being killed. And uh, as we wrap up, this book of Esther, we're going to see those who were powerless have all the power. Those who were not in control, in complete control. And so right here in chapter 9, verse 1, you could read that verse and really you could say that the rest of the book is really a wrap. They gain mastery, they gain control, and the rest of the book is going to be the rest of the book. However, that doesn't mean that it's not important. So we're going to look at what it has to say. We're going to dive in. So let's talk about the reversal explained. Let's keep reading in verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. 
No one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all the enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And they also killed, skip down to verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. I saved five minutes not trying to fight through those words, right? This victory is going to be great. It's going to be recorded in very specific detail. When you think back to Rahab, when Joshua and the Israelites were about to go in and conquer Jericho, where they were about to go into the promised land, and they meet, the spies meet with Rahab, and she says, the people melt away before you. The land is yours. That's the same thing that's happening here. It says the Jews were in complete control. Everyone was fearful of them. And even those who were in power were fearful of Mordecai because of the power that he had. The position that he was in completely ensured the success of this edict. The, G- the Jews were completely free to defend themselves, to destroy their enemies, just as their enemies had planned to do to them. And so here in the capital of Susa, the central power, the hub, right where the king was from, we see that 500 men in one day are killed, including the 10 sons of Haman. And it listed them to show the importance of Haman's sons. And with the death of his sons, I want you to think back to Esther chapter 5 when Haman bragged about all that he had, about his sons, about his wealth, All of his riches, all of these things right here at the beginning of chapter 9 are going to be completely wiped out. His life, his possessions, his own sons are completely done away with. Let's keep reading in verse 11. It says, That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, Well, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. And a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. The king is going to be so impressed with the Jews' ability to defend themselves. And he's going to go back to Esther and just say, all right, I've done it. Is there anything else that you want? Anything else? And so Esther's request is, can we have one more day? to take care of the enemies, our enemies. One more day to carry out the edict. 
one more day. And so he is going to allow one more day. He signs it into law. And he also, she also asked for the ten sons of Haman to be hanged on the gallows. This is kind of an odd request. If you look back in Joshua, Joshua chapter 8, Joshua chapter 10, you will see that the enemies of God, um, when they were executed, they were hung on trees. And they were hung on trees as a sign that they were under God's curse. Uh, this goes back to Deuteronomy, and we'll get back to this in a little bit towards the end. But don't miss the last, in this section, in the last two sections that we read, that they laid no hand on their plunder. Why? These guys were set up to kill the Jews, to plunder all that they had. The edict was signed in chapter 8 that they could kill their enemies and they could plunder everything that they had. So why would they not? Why would they not do exactly as the edict said that they could do? It's because it was a holy war. This was something between the Jewish people and their longtime enemy, the Amalekites. And so we see that the spoils here were not theirs for taking. And the same reservation is shown by all the Jews in verse 16. It says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and they got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on their plunder. So 75,000 other men around the country around the Persian Empire, will be killed, executed as a result of this edict. And if you think about it, the very people who would have plundered you, you could do the same to them, and yet they chose not to. In Persian records, it was customary. I went into Landon's office, and I thought, this doesn't sound like the Jews lost a single person. How is that even possible? Well, it was custom and other people's um, custom as they went into war and they went into battle to write down your enemy's losses, not your own. And I think that many Jewish people probably lost their lives on this day, but it was not custom to write those losses down. So we see 800 in the city of Susa. We see 75,000 throughout the Persian Empire lost, but they laid no hand on their plunder. This would be a very shining example to their countrymen, to the people that were not Jewish, that they lived with, that this was not about loot. This was about their lives. This was not about what they could gain financially. This was about living and dying. And so this would have been a shining example to them. So let's look at the, the next reversal, the reversal of a past failure. In 1 Samuel 15, God had specifically given commands for the Amalekites to be wiped out. And we see that King Saul at this time is going to not do as God had commanded him to do. Now we know that Samuel's going to take matters into his own hands. But I think in this time we're going to see Mordecai take matters into his own hand. Which is why he will choose to wipe out the ten sons of Haman. These were, this was a personal thing between God's people and the Amalekites. And he wanted to destroy his line. He didn't want a chance for revenge to happen, an uprising to happen. And this was very custom in this time of warfare. And so instead of being destroyed, 
God's people will be, uh, receive rest from those who hated him. And so we see that the Persian Empire itself is just turned upside down on itself. God's people are winning. They're winning uh, a battle that they should not have had any hope of winning or even defending themselves, which leads God's people to celebrate. And so let's look at the reversal celebrated. Um, when I was a senior in high school, many people don't know this about me, and I asked Landon if he knew this about me, but I was the senior mascot my senior year. Um, that is what I got to wear to all the football and basketball games. Uh, there was one little cheerleader that called me nose holes because that's what I looked out of was the nose holes of this Indian head. So we were the Marietta Indians, and we were going to an away game to play the Wilson Eagles. Now, the Wilson Eagles, the only claim to fame that Wilson, small town Oklahoma has is that this is the home of Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris actually grew up in Wilson, Oklahoma, so I had to throw that in there. You get a chance to talk about Chuck. But at the end of this game, our girls team was really, really good this year, and um, we were down by five with 12 seconds to play. And if you're down by five with 12 seconds to play, there's not really a lot of hope, okay? And so the crowd at Wilson begins to chant, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, you know the rest. Hey, hey, goodbye, right? Until our best player drives down, shoots a three, makes it, steals the incoming pass, shoots a three, as time expires, swish. And the Marietta fans go crazy that are in the building, right? This little gym was rocking all 400 of us that were there at that game. It was going crazy. And guess what? Guess what we started singing? <laughs> we flipped the celebration on their head. And that's kind of what we see going on here. This celebration, this going from mourning to a time of mourning to a time of celebration, knowing that this was your last day to celebrating a victory that you're going to have over your enemy. So we're going to see a victory that is won, yes. And it most definitely needed to be celebrated in this time. Because it gives the people celebrating the victory a chance to give credit where credit is due. And that credit was due to God. You know, in Exodus chapter 15, we see the Egyptians after Pharaoh or after the Egyptians and the chariots are swallowed up by the water. And we see Moses leading the people in a song about what had happened, a victory praise. Over and over in the Old Testament, you will see where they sing songs of praise to celebrate a victory that they had. And that's what God's people are doing here. This is also what we should do this time of year when we celebrate Christmas. As we celebrate Easter. Last Sunday when we celebrate communion. There should be times where we celebrate together. But what were God's people at this time to celebrate? Let's keep reading. <clears throat> Verse 20. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the province of the king Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. 
And as the month they had been turned from them, from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Skip down to 26. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what all had what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring to all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the same time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered, kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, city, and the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of the day cease among the descendants. So the term Purim, or as Mark told me, it's Purim, right? Um, if you remember back in chapter 2, chapter 3, where Haman decided to pick a date in which he wanted to wipe out the Jewish people, he cast lots or cast pur. That's what he cast. And so in an order... Um, in this play of words, going with the whole theme of reversals that we see in the book of Esther, we see the celebration of Purim happening. Uh, Geneva made me some cookies today, some Purim cookies, and she brought them up to me. Uh, Geneva, they're gone, so I need some more. Um, she even made me a card, a happy Purim, and, and it, it was really neat. I was going to share the cookies, but like I said, they're gone. So... Um, I may or may not have shared them with people, but anyway, we'll get to that later. But in this festival, celebrating Purim for the Jews, both in Susa, both throughout the Persian Empire, they were supposed to bind themselves together to feast, to rejoice, to remember, to give gifts to one another, to give gifts to the poor. If you want to write this down, in 2021, they're going to celebrate this on February 25th and 26th. They do it every year. But this should also remind the Jewish people, it should also, also remind us, as Gregory is going to note for us, additional note for you. In the Jewish calendar, the year begins and ends around March. It begins with the celebration of the Passover and ends with the celebration of Purim. That is, it begins with the celebration of how God delivered his people from the oppression of Pharaoh in a foreign land, and it ends with the celebration of how God delivered his people from the oppression of Haman in a foreign land. One of the things that you do not see in the book of Esther, like you do in Exodus, is the people binding themselves together to give honor and praise to God. Because like I said, we've said all along, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. You know, maybe they put up signs in the front yard that says the reason, Esther is the reason for the season. I'm not sure. So my question to you, and I want you to think about this, is does this make celebrating Purim wrong? Does it make celebrating it wrong? Let me just say that the heart, the manner of which they're celebrating Purim is it's, they have the right heart in celebrating it. It's remembering a time when they, would have have, when they would have rest from their enemies, when their sorrow would be turned to joy and what God had done. Regardless of whether they acknowledged God in the book, they acknowledged God with their lives. 
Now I want to show you something, something that I found really special as I read through this. This, this one was one of those eye-opening things to me. I want you to look at verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, uh, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And he had cast pur, that is he cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his, uh, his evil plans that he had devised against the Jews should return on its own head. And that he and his son should be hanged in the gallows. These verses have caused commentators a whole lot of grief. Maybe even they look at these verses and say there's some contradictions. Because if you look back in chapter 8, in chapter 8, we know that Mordecai and Esther wrote this edict. But here it's going to say that the king wrote the edict. So what gives? The observation that a lot of people talk about here is that Scholars believe that in chapter 9, we have a cleaned up version, like they're wrapping it up and putting a pretty bow on it, designed to give more credit to King Ahasuerus than was really his due. Or as Ian Duguid says, but perhaps the jarring mismatch between the letter and the events in the story is actually a hint to think more deeply about which king is in view in Mordecai's letter. If you look closely enough, chapters nine, in chapter 9, King Ahasuerus' name is not mentioned. Not once. It just says king. So, it was not King Ahasuerus who saved God's people. It was not King Ahasuerus that put this edict into being. It was the great king himself. God himself who reversed all of the fortunes for his people who made all of these things come to be. So, one of the beautiful parts of this letter is that Mordecai's letter could be read by the Persian people to which they would read it and go, man, that's glorifying to King Ahasuerus. That's awesome. But to the Jewish readers, it could easily be directed to the real hero of the story, God himself. I, I thought that was a cool twist on that, and I hope you did too. You know, the trouble... With festivals, the trouble with celebrations is that in the midst of holiday times, in the midst of organizing events, in the midst of having parties, of having people over, preparing food, um, we get so busy that we forget why we are celebrating in the first place. I think it becomes very evident this time of year. Catherine and I were just joking last night about how busy the next four weekends are. It's like wedding, Thanksgiving, wedding, this, this. It's like, man, we don't have time to do anything. So we just, you know, buckle up, let's get through it. And so the reality is people will gather every single Sunday and they will sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. They will sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. They will sing away in a manger. They will sing all of these songs that point us to God the Father, that point us to the gift of the Son that comes this time of year. And we can get so wrapped up in the busyness of it all that we, forgot, we forget to stop and remember why we are celebrating Christmas. You know, it reminds me of 
Christmas with the Griswolds. They're very excited about Christmas. They want to go over and beyond what they need to do to make it special. But they're so stressed that they just forget to stop and remember the true reason for the season. Not to sound too cliche there. So we can gather just like the Jews as they celebrate, celebrate Purim. We can give gifts to those less fortunate. We can buy food for Thanksgiving baskets. We can collect Operation Christmas Child boxes. We can give to missions year after year without fail. Landon doesn't even have to write it into an edict. You will do these things without there having to be a command to do so. But I just want us to be mindful that in doing all of this stuff, are we missing the celebration that should take place inside of us? Are we missing what we're supposed to celebrate? Which brings us to chapter 10. The reversal reconsidered. The edict to celebrate the feast of Purim um, forever is not the end of the story. Tacked onto the end of the book of Esther are these weird three verses in chapter 10. So let's consider them. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of his high honor of, of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. What are those verses doing there? It seems kind of out of place. But I think these verses serve to be a reminder that, and to put into perspective that this great reversal in the book of Esther shows us that at the end of the story, a whole lot really didn't, it remained unchanged after all. The truth was, King Ahasuerus was still king. Um, and at the end of the day, even though they had rest from their enemies, they still had one enemy still lurking right in their face, and that was the king himself. He was still in control of the kingdom. He was doing what he thought was right in his own eyes. He starts making tax, uh, imposing taxes right at the end. And even though Mordecai is still making some calls, and even though Mordecai is still very much in power, and it talks about him and all these other, uh, in the chronicles of the kings of the uh, kings of Media and Persia, King Ahasuerus was still in control. So the book of Esther, it's a great story of reversals for God's people and rest for God's people from their enemies. But it's not the greatest reversal story in the Bible because we're going to see that the greatest reversal is foreshadowed in the book of Esther. The events that are celebrated by Esther and her people are only a foreshadowing of the greatest reversal story. We're going to know that in the book of Esther, their rest, their peace will not last. Um, it's pointing us forward to a day that it will last forever. God did not wage war on, um, on his enemies, those who had sinned against him, but he's going to wage war on his son. We're going to talk about how Jesus was, God declared war on his son, Jesus. And so God the Father 
He laid upon his son the guilt of our sins for those who would become our, you know, his people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. And having laid our sin on his son and pouring out his wrath on his son for our sins, the full wrath was satisfied by God. His wrath, his judgment for sin was satisfied for you and for me. And his body uh, being completely tortured by the Romans to the point of death, but he was also exposed to a cosmic um, shame by his body being hung on a tree. And like Haman and like his sons, Jesus' body was hung on a tree, the ultimate sign of God's judgment curse. Deuteronomy 21, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And on the cross, Jesus took God's, for, uh, God's curse for us. Why? So that we might receive peace, and we might receive rest from our guilt, and we might have access to the Father that we've never had before. And that is worth celebrating. So a few things that I want us to take away very quickly from the book of Esther. First of all, I want you to examine your heart. What types of things are you, is your heart most devoted to? Especially as we enter into Christmas. Especially as we think about Easter. When we celebrate these things. We have more reason to celebrate than anyone else in the world. We need to change how we celebrate in these times. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to give gifts. I'm not saying it's wrong to meet for eating because I enjoy Thanksgiving tremendously. And I want you to remember in the book of Esther, when they feast, when they fast, when they pray, when they celebrate, I want you to think about if those things are a part of your life. And are we doing them in the right manner? Is it honoring and glorifying to God? Or is our heart most devoted to our own personal agenda? It's all a, an examination of your own heart. Do we seek to bring God glory? Do we truly celebrate the reason for the season during this time? And lastly, I want you to celebrate the greatest reversal. We have every reason to celebrate. When they sing a Christmas song at Christmas, uh, we should be shouting it. There should be something inside of us that stirs to the point that we're screaming the song, right? Uh, you don't want me to sing the song. and People would just leave. So, um, you know, the Puritans, when they would celebrate, you will not see Puritans celebrate Easter or Christmas very much. And one of the reasons why they say that is because you know what? Every Sunday is Easter. Every Sunday is Christmas. And we're going to celebrate like that every single Sunday. We're not just going to do it on Easter and just going to do it on Christmas. There should constantly be a tone of celebration within the heart of a Christ follower. And so I understand that there should be a somber tone when you meet for a funeral. But I'm telling you, I've been to some worship services that I thought I was at a funeral before. And, and I hope that is not the case with our church. We have been given life. We were dead. We were given, uh, we were made alive through Christ. We have every reason to celebrate. We have a, a reason to shout from the mountaintops. And I hope that we are found faithful in doing that. 
So the kingdom of Ahasuerus has passed away. And I would tell you that in some ways his kingdom is still around today. Uh, we're still fighting this battle between good and evil. There's still this struggle between good and evil. But it will not always be this way. It will not always be that way. The day is coming when the angels will cry out at last. Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And on that day, we too, like the elders of heaven will fall on our faces, and like it says in Revelation 5, 9, we will cry out, Worthy is God the Father and the Lamb that was slain, by whose blood we have been redeemed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And I cannot wait to rest and celebrate on that day, to which we say amen. So let's pray.